our Dharma practice as being a path of opening. It's opening to our bodies, opening to the flow of energy, of sensation, opening to the senses. You've probably experienced a refinement of sense perception as the mind becomes more clear, less distracted. There's an increasing intensity and clarity through our sense doors. We open to our emotions, to our thoughts, We open to understanding and seeing intimately the characteristics of our experience, the impermanence and dukkha or unsatisfactoriness or selflessness. And through the repeated observation of what it is that's happening, we transfer this understanding <clears throat> from the realm of intellect <clears throat> to the realm of direct, immediate experience. We see for ourselves the changing nature, the ungovernable nature of all the elements. So it's an opening to that in a very profound way. We open to different levels of silence. Silence of the body, silence of the mind, finally opening to the supreme silence, the silence of the unconditioned. When we see and understand Dharma practice in this way, it becomes clear that it is not a reaching out for something. It is not a grasping. It is not a wanting energy. Rather, it is a settling back. It's a settling back and opening to the true nature of our experience. And so there's nothing we have to get because it is already here. The nature of mindfulness is exactly this quality of settling back into the moment and opening. It sounds so very easy to settle back and open up. What makes it so difficult is that there is a very deeply conditioned factor in our mind which functions in such a way as to keep us closed. And that is the factor of fear. Fear is a very strong and deep pattern that is conditioned in our minds. This fear of pain, this fear of physical pain, this fear of emotional pain, of insecurity, this fear of impermanence, this fear of change, this fear of the unknown, this fear of death, And these fears limit us. They limit our ability to open to what is true. 
what happens on this journey of ours is that as we begin the process of opening, we come to the edge, we come to the boundaries of what has been comfortable for us. We come to the edge of how much pain we can bear. We come to the edge of how much emotional disturbance we can bear. And as we explore this edge, as we explore this boundary, the nature of fear in the mind begins to reveal itself. It begins to show itself because we're playing on the edge, the edge of what we've been willing to accept. So as we practice and as we look and observe and come to this edge, come to this boundary, we see that fear and understanding fear becomes an essential and integral part of our Dharma practice, of our understanding. Because if we don't understand it, it remains a limiting factor for us and we never get through it. And if we do understand fear, if we can understand the operation of it in the mind, it no longer is a barrier. It's just something else to observe and to work with. And it's coming to the understanding that through the power of mindfulness, when the mindfulness is established, everything is workable. We don't have to push anything outside of our awareness. When we look carefully at the nature of fear in the mind, we see that it is rooted in aversion. And aversion has two sides to it. One side is called advancing or aggressive aversion. And that is that aspect that manifests as anger when we come into contact with something that's unpleasant or we don't like. If aversion is manifesting aggressively, we respond with the condemning mind, with the mind that strikes out in anger. The other side of aversion is called the retreating side. That is, when we come up against something that we don't like or unpleasant, and if the mind is in retreat rather than advancing, we experience it as fear. When we look at fear, we can experience that contracting nature of it. We are pulling back, we're pulling into ourselves, trying to avoid the unpleasantness. And so it's a shutting down, it's a pulling back. When fear is strong in the mind, we see that it also conditions other unwholesome mental factors. When we're afraid of losing what we have, then fear conditions attachment. We begin to grasp and cling and hold on to things because we're afraid of losing them. And when we're afraid of experiencing things that we don't want, so then we create resistance 
we build a wall of resistance to keep the unpleasant out. All of this comes from fear in the mind. Chuang Tzu, who is, he was great Taoist sage of ancient China, he said, little fears cause anxiety and big fears cause panic. This is the effect of fear in the mind. Anxiety, panic, attachment, resistance. It's worth looking at because it's a strong conditioning force in our lives. What is it that we're afraid of? What are the things that cause this fear to arise in us? One major domain is that of pain. We've been conditioned to be afraid of pain, not to want to look at it, not to want to feel it. We've been conditioned to avoid unpleasantness. There's often a basic unwillingness to be uncomfortable. We don't like to feel discomfort. And so when we look at our lives, we see how much we do to avoid that discomfort and how much that limits us, how much we don't do out of that fear. Can begin to see it here in the retreat, in the practice. What motivates just the very small shifts of position, the minor adjustments? Now, even in the course of one sitting, where we think we're pretty still, how many small, tiny movements do we make? Sometimes mindfully, often not mindfully. What's conditioning that movement? It's either an acknowledged or an unacknowledged fear of discomfort. We don't like to be with it. And so we shift position to avoid it. Sitting without moving, really taking that strong resolve, let me sit absolutely motionless and see what happens. There's a tremendous power in that because then we're not being run by our fear, our even subtle fear. Fear of discomfort has to do with a lot of our fear about being sleepy. We don't like to be sleepy. We don't like that feeling of being tired. So how often at night you may be wide awake or moderately awake or a little awake and the thought will come, well, I better go to sleep so I'm not tired tomorrow. Because there's this fear in the mind, fear of feeling something that's not pleasant or uncomfortable. And so we limit ourselves, we pull back. Sometimes our fears arise with respect to pain, not even for the sensations that are actually there, which may be quite bearable, but from the anticipation 
of having to experience them, experience them for the next hour. And so really what we're afraid of is not the sensation, but an anticipation. We create the fear in our mind. This is from... What is it from? From the Zen doctrine of no mind. Uh, All is mind-made. It is like a person painting a tiger. Paints it, looks at it, and is frightened. (laughs) There is, however, nothing at all in the painted figure itself which is fearsome. All is the brushwork of your own imagination. How often do we do that? We create tigers in our mind. We paint pictures of tigers and then get afraid and then pull back. So it's helpful to see that, to understand, and to see another possibility. Working with physical pain is a wonderful object in the practice. If we can learn to work with it without so much fear. It's a very strong object. When the pain is there, the mind is not wandering very much. It's a compelling, compelling object of our attention, and so the samadhi, the concentration, can get very, very deep with it. And if we know how to play with it in the right way, it has a tremendous power because it brings us right to the edge of what we're willing to be with. Now, often we hear that idea of playing on the edge and we think, well, that's a nice idea, I'd really like to play on the edge. (laughs) As we're standing safely back from it. We might wonder, well, how do I get to the edge? Pain is a very good way. To really sit with it and go into it and look at it carefully the intensity of it can become totally interesting. We begin to appreciate, not in a theoretical way, but in a, in a very, very immediate way, we begin to appreciate the power of these material elements which constitute the body. Now, normally, we, ta- we either take it for granted or don't pay much attention because they're more or less in balance for the time being. These elements have tremendous power. And when we're playing with the edge of pain, when we're willing to stay with it and to see where it goes, we begin to feel that. We begin to see in a very clear way the three characteristics. One of the meanings of anatta, or selflessness, which people often have such a hard time understanding or grasping, is very clearly revealed when we play at this edge, because one of the meanings is ungovernableness, that the elements are following their own laws, their own nature, they're not subject to our wishes. And so when you're sitting and watching this pain, the intensity of the elements, it becomes so clear that there is no control over that.
So we see that very directly. The insight matures in a very easy way then. When Upandita first came to this country, I was sitting on retreat. My practice was going along and I was having a merry old time. And one day about three weeks or a month before the end, he said, I want you to sit until the pain comes and then sit through it. That sounds like fun. (laughs) So I sat and the, the, the concentration was pretty good, so I was sitting quite a while, and then the pain came. And I'm watching and watching and watching, and it's getting more and more intense. It's becoming excruciating. It's becoming unbearable. And just watching it, And really getting to an understanding, what does unbearable pain mean? What does it mean that something is unbearable? Can we play right at that line? And I had a hard time playing at that line. And after some hours, I would just have to give up and move. And I'd go in and report. And at first he tried to be very encouraging. He said, you know, you can do it, just keep sitting through it, Come, come out the other end. So I'd go back and with this new resolve, and I'd sit with it and it would become unbearable. It comes to that point where every minute feels like an hour. You know, excruciating pain, and you know it's, it's made worse by knowing that if you move a quarter of an inch, it would go away. <laughs> and so the resolve that's needed to stay with it. So first he encouraged me, and then he insulted me. (laughs) And then he... Finally, I just steeled myself with every ounce of willpower. And I said, let me die. (laughs) And it felt out, and I was sitting there for quite a few hours, and I was starting to sweat and convulse and shake. The pain was so intense. I go up and report all this, and he said, oh, you should just sit an hour, walk an hour. (laughs) It was very instructive, extremely instructive, just to be willing to explore what that edge is. Sometimes people are afraid of pain because of the mindset that it's doing this irreparable damage. And I also had a strong experience like that. One year I was going to sit uh, in Nepal with him, and I went there with my back in a terrible condition, the worst that it's ever been. It was really crippling, and every step I took, it just was this crippling pain. And as I was sitting and walking, I had the thoughts kept going through my mind. I am really doing damage to myself. This is really a stupid thing to be doing. And all those fears started coming up in the mind. 
Rupandita has a very uncompromising viewpoint. From his point of view, it's fine if you die in practice. You know? But, but that's not a problem. And so, and so anything less than that was quite insignificant. And so it kind of inspired me to try to hang in there and just be with it. My compromise to the upper middle path mentality of American Dharma is <laughs> that if it got too bad, I would either lie down or rest my back against the wall. I kind of eased the position at times, but I stayed with that intense, intense pain of what felt to be a real organic problem. And it took about three weeks of going through that. And it was amazing. At the end of that time, the whole condition disappeared. My back was fine. And it was just another good lesson in the amazing power of the mind when we're willing to stay with the discomfort. We're willing just to be with it, to go through with it, even if we have to ease our position at times, but not to, not to back off. There are many stories of people actually going through these deep healing crises in meditation of very organic diseases, of tumors and TB and cancer. And in the course of their practice, all of that comes up, and often in terms of excruciating pain. And if there's enough faith, enough confidence in the mind and in the practice to stay with it, many, many times there's actually a healing that takes place. And so it's worth just exploring that domain, even if we're not quite at the point of being ready to die in practice, although I hope we'll practice when we're dying, which will certainly happen to all of us. To look carefully to work with the fear that comes up in the mind, to see the fear, and see if, we can, see if we can stay with it, because there's a tremendous amount to learn. This fear of pain, physical pain. Another deep fear is fear of psychological pain, fear of insecurity, psychological insecurity. And this is common in our world of interpersonal relationships. We don't like the feeling of being insecure. We're afraid of not being liked by other people, or not being accepted, or not being loved, or not being respected. And this fear of insecurity conditions a whole string of different kinds of behavior and patterns that become a source of suffering for us. And they're all based on this fear. Based on a fear of insecurity, we find ourselves looking to other people for validation as if we have to find validation for our being in the eyes of other people. That's a very unstable place in our lives. 
There's no place of balance, there's no place of center. The fear of insecurity also leads to the creation of self-image. We create a self-image for ourselves that we feel is acceptable, that other people will like, that other people will relate to. So we concretize this self-image, this way we are, out of a fear of being vulnerable in the way we actually are. I had a very telling example of this, and the, the suffering of discovering it and the freedom on the other side of it, also in that course with uh, Sayadaw when he was here, it was a very high-pressure course. It was extremely demanding and very stern in the interviews. So there's a lot of, a lot of pressure. One time I go into an interview and I'm reporting on my experience. And after I finish my report, he said, that's not true. <laughs> it was really <laughs> shocking. And I realized that it wasn't true. <laughs> but actually I was reporting on something that had happened, you know, a day or two before, but in my mind, I thought it was a good thing to be happening. And so in this semi-half-conscious way, you know, I was reporting it, sort of knowing that it wasn't true, but it wasn't really, wasn't really fully acknowledged in my mind. And in that moment, under that intensity of pressure, and basically his reflecting back that I was lying, it was devastating. I mean, I came out of the interview, it took days to recover. You know, I was really terribly shaken because I had been going under the assumption that not only that I was a basically honest person, but certainly in this course of spiritual practice I was being honest. And there it was, I mean, it was so plain that I wasn't. But after I got over the devastation, it was kind of a relief to say, oh yes, you have that liar in you. Because there was now no longer a mask, there was no longer a false assumption. So, oh yeah, that's another part of the mind. And in becoming aware of it, becoming accepting of it, there was a relief, there was an ease. Because it's letting go a little bit more of the self-image, of the masks that we use. We hold on to them because we're afraid of simply being, exposing all the different parts of ourselves. The fear of insecurity conditions those self-images. It conditions the judging mind. You know, you've probably seen very, very clearly by now how much judgment there is. Judgment about ourselves, a lot of judgment about other people. Now, all these opinions we have about everybody else here, people you have never even spoken to. I'm sure you have them all scoped out. and You know exactly what they're like and why they're like that. 
Notice what the feeling is when the mind is making a judgment. It gives us a certain sense of security. It's like we're establishing some security in ourselves, in our opinion of things. There's a solidity there in that moment. And so fear of insecurity, fear of not being solid, fear of being vulnerable, fuels that kind of comparing mind and judging mind. We don't need that feeling. We don't need to judge in order to make ourselves feel secure. And how nice it would be to let go of the judging mind. It's extra. Fear of insecurity leads to attachments in our lives and relationships. How much of our interpersonal relationships come about because we're afraid of being alone, or afraid of being insecure? And how often that gets confused with love. And so I think it's helpful to begin to look carefully at the difference between attachment and clinging and need on the one hand and on a genuine loving feeling on the other, which is quite different than attachment and quite different than need. Turn the tape over at this point. And on a genuine loving feeling on the other, which is quite different than attachment and quite different than need. If it becomes possible for us to open to these feelings of psychological insecurity in the same way that we're willing to open to the pain, to the physical pain, if we can allow ourselves to feel these feelings. Now sometimes just as an exercise in openness, inward openness, openness with ourselves, What would it be like to imagine somebody who had the power, who's sitting in front of you and who had the power to look into your mind and heart? And then what is it that we would like to protect? What is it that we would like to cover? That's exactly the place that we can open to, that we can accept. If we can do this, then we no longer need to lead defensive lives. We no no longer need to protect ourselves from these feelings of vulnerability or of openness. Vimala Thakkar is a woman from India who is a wonderful teacher of a teacher of awareness living awareness. She was an early student and friend of Krishnamurti. And in the beginning, Krishnamurti 
encouraged her to teach, to go out and begin teaching, and she didn't want to. And he chided her by saying, the reason you don't want to begin teaching is because you're afraid to make mistakes. There's no need to be afraid to make mistakes, because we all do. And it's that willingness to open, to act, to go forward, in spite of the fears, in spite of the uncertainties. This fear of physical pain, this fear of psychological pain, of insecurity, being vulnerable. This fear of impermanence, and fear of the unknown, and fear of death, which is quite strong in us. What is the fear of death? Why is that so deeply conditioned and so pervasive you know, among us? What are we afraid of? Where does it come from? When there's a strong identification with this mind and body as being self, as being I, then we become afraid of experiencing the momentariness of phenomena. We, be, we become afraid of experiencing change, particularly at the time of death, the big change. But all it is, is a moment of change. Just like all the other moments. When we see clearly this process of mind and body, of consciousness and object, arising and dissolving every moment, and we're actually tuning into the, to the momentary dissolution of phenomena, we see that that is the nature of things. And at first, and in a meditative way as well, as we see this dissolution, the dissolution in every single moment, that there is no place that is secure, there is no place that is reliable, not in the body, not in the mind, not in the world, because everything is dissolving, and dissolving continually. Initially, both if we think about it, but also in the direct experience of meditation, there might come fear in the mind, because we're not accustomed to that. The beauty of the practice and the power of it is that through our awareness, through the mindfulness of that aspect of the process, we become the process of change rather than being apart from it, observing it. If we're holding ourselves back observing it, then we're still holding on, we're still identifying, and so there is still fear. When we become the process of change, there is no separation from it. At that time, there is no fear in the mind. There is no fear of change, there is no fear of death. This is from Krishnamurti. Most of us are frightened of dying because we don't know what it means to live. We don't know how to live 
and therefore we don't know how to die. As long as we are frightened of life, we shall be frightened of death. The person who is not frightened of life is not frightened of being completely insecure. For they understand that inwardly and psychologically there is no security. When there is no security, there is an endless movement, and then life and death are the same. The person who lives without conflict, who lives with beauty and love, is not frightened of death. If you die to everything you know, including your family, your memory, everything you have felt, then death is a purification, a rejuvenating process. To find out actually what takes place when you die, you must die. You must die not physically but psychologically, inwardly. Die to the things you have cherished and to the things you are bitter about. If you have died to one of your pleasures, the smallest or the greatest, naturally, without enforcement or argument, then you will know what it means to die. To die is to have a mind that is completely empty of itself, empty of its daily longings, pleasures, and agonies. When there is death, there is something totally new. Freedom from the known is death and then you are living. That is a beautiful description of our practice. Dying in each moment, dying to each moment, not holding on. When we try to recreate a past experience, which we do so often in our practice, when our mind is judging or comparing this sitting to the last sitting, Whenever we try to recreate an experience, it is like dragging a corpse around. The past experience is dead and gone and finished. There is constant death and rebirth. And our practice is to keep us at that edge where there is freedom from the known because we don't know what will arise in the next moment. So we, can we keep that sense of interest to die to what is past and to see just this moment and this moment and this moment? So how do we do this? How do we work with these fears? Because they're there. We have fear of pain, and we have fear of insecurity, and we have fear of change and death. How do we work with the fear itself when it arises? One thing that I think is quite important is to have a healthy respect for it. Because it's not a superficial conditioning. It's not enough just to intellectually consider the nature of fear. 
This is a powerful motive force in the mind. And so we have to respect the power of it, respect the conditioning of it. So the first step in working with the fear is to recognize it as it arises. To see that it is okay to feel fear, that fear becomes the object of our attention. Can we open to it? Feeling the sensations of it, seeing the thoughts around it, seeing the images. A basic attitude of soft acceptance. It's okay. It's okay to feel fear. One time I was working with a lot of fear in my practice, and I was noting fear, 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 fear. And it just, it, it just fell locked in. It went on for a few days like this. One, about the third day, I was walking outside and the fear was still so strong in the mind. And something just clicked. I said, it's okay, let the fear be here for the rest of my life. It's okay. In that moment of a real acceptance of it, in that moment, the whole thing vanished. And it was such a clear lesson once again in how even subtle resistance to what's present feeds it. And so our acceptance of fear has to be genuine, that it's really okay to feel it, because that creates the space for some movement. An image that I think conveys the proper attitude of mind with respect to fear is how we would be with a frightened child. If there were a child that were frightened, how would we be relating to that child? Probably we would be very supportive, be present, be loving. We wouldn't be condemning the fear. We wouldn't be saying, oh, you shouldn't be having that. And also not feeding the fear. Yeah, you really should be afraid. <laughs> it's like with a child we have that perspective of just being present and being caring and being loving without wallowing in the emotion in exactly the same way can we relate to our own fear in that way so there's an acceptance there's an openness we don't identify or wallow in it, and we don't condemn it, we don't try to push it away. Fear is deconditioned in our minds by this quality of gentle acceptance. The fear is there, it's going to come up. We start playing at various edges, whether it's sitting you know, a long time and working with the pain or with our emotions, the fear is going to come up. It is deconditioned as a power in our minds through the power of mindfulness, where we just see it, we note it, we accept it, and it begins to weaken. A couple of years ago, I was on a rafting trip in Idaho, and it was the first 
really uh, the first long one I had been with with medium medium intensity white water, and I did not know much about rivers. And along with the the boats that the guides were uh, rowing, they had these what they call little Tahitis. They're inflatable, like inflatable kayaks, which basically are big bathroom toys. You know, but you sit and you paddle. And I'm in one of these with uh, someone else, and we're going down the river, and we're beginning to go through some rapids. And all of a sudden, there's something which is called a hole in a river. I never knew. I didn't know that rivers had holes in them. (laughs) But they do. And sure enough, we went right for the hole. And it pulled, uh, it pulled the, the kayak down, it pulled us down. And it was, it was a little fearful. <laughs> <laughs> it was more fearful the second time I was pulled down. I was pulled down into this kind of whirlpool and then you know, bobbed back up. And then the whirlpool pulled me down again. And this is in the middle of you know, intense, rushing water. And, but through it all, and even though there was you know, a fair amount of fear present, uh, I also had a life preserver on, which is a good idea if you're river rafting. <laughs> and so even in the middle of that, of being pulled down, I could feel the buoyancy of the life preserver just kind of pushing me back up to the surface. And so there was that place of essential balance, even in the midst of the you know, intensity and the fear, Trusting the buoyancy of the life preserver. Guess what's the life preserver in our practice? (laughs) Even when things get intense, and even when fear is coming up because of the intensity, if there is some mindfulness, if there is some awareness that's really accepting That mindfulness is the buoyancy. That's what brings us back to the surface of clarity. And we can trust that. That is the power of awareness in the mind. And it enables us to deal with increasingly intense situations. It's our life jacket. So that's the first way of dealing with fear, really looking at the fear itself, making it the object of attention so that we are no longer afraid of fear, that we're willing to be with that. Second way of working with fear is to take a measure of the situation. Now, to really look carefully at what the situation is, sometimes a timely retreat is in order. You know, something happens and fear arises and stepping back is a good idea. At other times, in other situations, it really becomes an opportunity for some heroic courage, heroic effort. But even in spite of the fear, we arouse that quality of going ahead and doing the action. Let me see what this is about. Let me experience this. Can I sit for two hours without moving? Just let me say, three hours, five hours. 
just to see what's going to happen. It's not always appropriate to do that, but sometimes it is. And so not to let fear be the conditioning factor, but rather let our own discriminating wisdom be the discriminating factor. When I was in the third grade, my singing teacher told me to mouth the words. <laughs> and that was the end of a glorious career. <laughs> it had a horrible effect on me. <laughs> I really conditioned this great inhibition and fear about singing. <laughs> and so after many years of intensive spiritual practice, <laughs> I was teaching at Naropa one summer, and I saw, and it was in the brochure, uh, a course description of this course called The Natural Voice. Uh, it was kind of a New Age singing class. Uh, okay, this is for me. Now I'm going to really work through this fear about singing. So I go to class, and the first few times were quite a lot of fun. And because there were a lot of group exercises and we were doing all these things and I was jumping in and participating. One day the teacher was sick and we had a substitute teacher. <laughs> and it was a woman who was teaching Balkan folk singing. <laughs> what she had us do, she got us all in a circle, it was quite a big class, and she said, okay, I'm going to sing a note, and you sing it back to me. I knew that I was in big trouble. <laughs> so she's going around the room. I'm getting more and more uptight <laughs> and nervous. Gets to my turn, she sings this note. Some sound comes out of me. <laughs> it wasn't even in the ballpark. <laughs> It was so far off. <laughs> but she was a very determined woman. <laughs> so she sings it again. And I... <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> Finally, the, 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 the regular teacher of the class, and this went on for some time, I'm really getting quite upset. The regular teacher of the class came back in and he sort of saw what was out of great compassion. He sort of very progressively led me up, you know, tone by tone by tone. <laughs> Finally, when I hit the right, I hit the right note, the whole class started to applaud. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I tell this story is that even though it was somewhat humiliating and embarrassing, <laughs> Even while I was going through it, I also had a certain sense of appreciation of just doing something that was difficult, you know, with all the fear and with all the embarrassment, but not to necessarily let those factors in the mind hold us back. You know, that we can move forward with them right there. 
and that that gives just a greater sense of freedom in our lives. We can explore those areas where we feel limited or inhibited. We can do that in our practice. Work with pain for some time and again take take a discriminating look at the balance in your mind, the strength of your mind, the power of your confidence, and all these things have to be measured. But if you feel that there actually you know, is a way of working skillfully, just go into it. See what happens. Be with the intensity of it. It creates a very powerful energy. You know, work with sleep. How much sleep is actually needed? Play the edge in various ways. How much food is actually needed? So many times, you know, I would be sitting just in, in the early times of my practice and it would, it would just be those wonderful sittings. You know, everything is clear and the body's light and it feels like you know, one's going to get enlightened any moment. <laughs> and then the tea bell would ring. And this huge conflict. You know, do I sit here and get enlightened or do I go for my banana? <laughs> and how many times did I go for the banana? <laughs> Conditioned by a fear. I'm not exactly sure fear of what. <laughs> fear of not getting the banana. Okay, so to work with the edges, to really experiment and play, not, not to hold back. The last way that I want to mention of working with fear is really by cultivating some other qualities in the mind, which serve as the counterbalance or the antidote to fear, which are the qualities of love, loving-kindness, and trust. Because when these are present in a deep way, then they diminish the power of fear in our mind. When we take the three refuges in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, and when we understand it, we are really cultivating a wonderful sense of trust. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we are taking refuge we are trusting in our Buddha nature. I want to read something from the Dalai Lama. Actually, a couple of things. This, was, this question actually was asked to him while he was giving a talk here at IMS. This was quite a few years ago. The question was, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this as a beginning meditation student? He said, you should not be discouraged. Your feeling I am of no value is wrong, absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. And I thought that was a very direct and powerful statement which reflected the understanding that
all are Buddha nature expressing itself. It's not something to get, it's something to realize. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha in that way, what we're doing is taking refuge in the essential worthiness. We're taking refuge in awakened mind, which is all of us. And so it's not to buy into those thoughts of unworthiness, because as Dalai Lama said, they are wrong. They are absolutely wrong. They do not reflect our experience. They do not reflect what is true. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we are taking refuge in the actuality of the moment. And in that moment of direct perception, again there is no fear. That's where accuracy is so important. Can we accurately be there with each moment's experience? That is the Dharma manifesting itself. When we take refuge in the Sangha, we are taking refuge in this whole field of loving support that we give to each other. It becomes a field for seeing the true nature. Developing these qualities of trust and love along with the direct looking at the fear, playing at our edge, going through at that which limits us. All of this makes the working with fear this intrinsic part of what we're doing becomes a very liberating part of our practice. Let's sit for a few minutes. You have fear of some pain or suffering. You should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, then there is also no need to worry. <laughs> Another technique is to investigate who is becoming afraid. Examine the nature of yourself. Where is this I? Who is I? What is the nature of I? Is there an I beside the physical body and consciousness? When you have fear, you can think, others have fear similar to this. May I take to myself all of their fears. Even though you are opening yourself to greater suffering, taking greater suffering to yourself, your fear lessens. Also, if you have a sense of fear due to insecurity, you can imagine for existence for instance, if you are lying down, that your head is in the lap of the Buddha. Keep your heads in the lap of the Buddha.